This episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast is sponsored by Mr. B, the only potato chip made in the great state of West Virginia. Check out their products in your local grocery store or online at mrb.com. Hey everybody, Cooper here once again, and we're back for part two of the Grave Diggers of Moundsville. This is an auditory adventure that dives into the lives of the family who discovered Moundsville, their infamous role in the Underground Railroad, and the importance of the Ohio River, and the mysterious artifact found inside the Grave Creek Mound. If you haven't listened to part one yet, which I highly recommend, we think it's best that you do so before listening to this episode. CJ Harvey is the chief narrator and Mason Jack, the executive producer of the podcast, is the author of this piece. A written version of the story can be found on our website, mountaineermedia.org. At the end of this episode, CJ and I actually sit down with Mason and ask him about how he researched this tale, which includes busting out some old school primary resources and documents at the renovated Charleston Library. So pretty cool stuff, uh, behind the scenes details coming after this episode, on the same episode, but at the very end of it. Uh, But anyway, let's get to it right now on the Mountaineer Media Podcast. Here's part two of the Grave Diggers of Moundsville. Today, the Tomlinson name is found all over the state of West Virginia. Street signs, festivals, it's the namesake of an old family mansion in Wood County. And of course, Tomlinson Run State Park is a popular outdoor recreation spot in Hancock County. They're well remembered in the Mountain State as the pioneers who found Moundsville and helped build it into what it is today. But as we learned in part one of this series, the Tomlinsons of the 1800s also earned a reputation as slave-owning frontiersmen who went to great lengths to keep their property from escaping, or risk suffering the consequences, like Mike did when he was burned alive. Although the heinous murder of Mike did help spark the revolution that took place for African Americans trying to escape. The Underground Railroad, neither underground nor an actual railroad, became a system of escape routes from slave states to free states designed by abolitionists. Mike's death served as an instrumental moment in the development of these routes. After the Tomlinson's vicious killing of Mike, word spread that there needed to be a more developed system allowing the enslaved safe passage deep into free states where they'd be protected if their former owners came looking for them. And the Ohio River Valley became one of the most important symbols in the 19th century during this escape to freedom. Harriet Tubman has claimed great fame for helping hundreds of slaves escape. Another of those abolitionists was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin, possibly the most important novel in the 1800s, as it depicts the harsh conditions slaves experienced during their captivity. She's been quoted as saying that she was inspired to share those tales after hearing about the harrowing escape of a slave woman and her child who jumped across large chunks of floating ice on the Ohio 
in order to gain their freedom on the north side of the river. Tubman and Stowe weren't the only well-known figures of the century stunned by the treatment of slaves either. In 1841, an expedition sailing south along the Ohio River caught the eye of a man standing along its banks in Kentucky. He witnessed hundreds of slaves beaten and battered, shackled together with irons, waiting for what was to come at the end of that journey, most likely on a farm somewhere in the Deep South. At the time, a 35-year-old Abraham Lincoln watched as these slaves were sent to their doom. The injustices of the scene had Lincoln feeling several emotions. He's quoted as saying, any time that he saw the Ohio River, it drove him to misery. Quote, I see something like it every time I touch the Ohio or any other slave border. End quote. Lincoln would replay that memory in his head in the days leading up to his presidency and the Civil War. The 277-mile-long natural river made for a treacherous obstacle for slaves wanting to escape to freedom. Add in the rugged Appalachian Mountains, and you can imagine that travel was very difficult. But slaves often used the terrain to their advantage. The area made it difficult for patrolmen to pursue fleeing slaves, and the region served as a natural protection. But still, it proved to be a dangerous path to freedom. Surprisingly, a majority of the escapes took part in the winter, so those heading north could hop across the ice instead of attempting to swim across the brisk moving water. When waiting for winter wasn't an option, they'd steal boats and canoes to travel across just to make it easier. Of course, stealing boats and canoes was easier said than done. Though the Underground Railroad's history is surrounded by ambiguity due to the clandestine nature of the abolitionists' efforts, many runaway slaves used the border between pre-statehood West Virginia and Ohio as a primary source of escape. So for those looking to cross the river to freedom, many used the Grave Creek Mound as a natural landmark to note that crossing at that point was safer than crossing at a lot of other points on the river. So even though it was several years later, Mike's death didn't go overlooked, because had his story not spread, many wouldn't have known passage across the river at the mound was safer than other locations, and many enslaved people went on to use that portion to escape to freedom. Cooper, you know they say, variety is the spice of life. And Ray's rub, it only makes sense, has 21 mouth-watering herbs and spices. Talk about variety. 21, man, that's uh, you, you can't beat that. And when it comes to seasoning your meats and veggies, Ray's Rub is certainly the way to go. Absolutely. And guys, it can be applied to anything. If you go to RaysRub.com or shop on Amazon, you can get a bottle of Ray's Rub. We had the founder, Brody Prudnick, on the podcast. It's an awesome story. His father, his late father, started this business and Brody is carrying it on. Ray's Rub can be applied to anything, right? Beef, chicken, wild game, casserole, stew, the list goes on and on. It's your call. They promise that once you try it, it's going to be the only seasoning that you want to buy. RaysRub.com. 
CJ, when I needed an engagement ring, I knew it was important to me that I shop at a West Virginia business. So I checked out Calvin Broyles in Charleston and they blew me away. They are West Virginia's only third generation family owned and operated jewelry business. And they continue to honor their traditions of security, confidence and guidance when helping folks pick out jewelry gifts in the great state of West Virginia. Yeah, and you don't have to be just in Charleston to find them. They do have their location in the capital city, but they're also in Taze Valley and Beckley. You can also find them at calvinbroyles.com. That's calvinbroyles.com. The mound not only served as a landmark for runaway slaves, but also as a beautiful nod to our ancestors. In the early 1800s, even Lewis and Clark documenting the Grave Creek Mound in their myth-making expedition west. Meriwether Lewis writing, quote, I landed on the east side of the river and went on shore to view a remarkable artificial mound of earth called by the people in the neighborhood the Indian Grave. This remarkable artificial mound of earth stands on the east banks of the Ohio, 12 miles below Wheeling and about 700 paces from the river. End quote. The mound sat at the center of the settlement, which was at the time known as Elizabethtown, until 1865 when it was renamed Moundsville. But the mammoth mound of earth would become the epicenter of controversy and intrigue in 1938. A writer under the pen name H.E.D. and Company wrote in a local newspaper that it was finally time to uncover the mysterious contents within the mound. Now, up until that point, very little excavation had been done to explore what the Adena buried inside. Although the Tomlinsons had been slave owners and weren't afraid to flaunt their wealth, they did protect the Native American culture, and after discovering that it was an Indian burial site, they chose to leave it untouched. That was until this unnamed author sparked the discussion to open it up. The article stated, quote, our negligence with regard to the excavation of our mammoth mound has called down the censure and reprobation of the enlightened of every community wherever the knowledge of the great mound at Grave Creek existed. Long has the scientific world gazed with an eager eye for its excavation. Awake! Awake! Then, citizens, let us rally our full force. Roll in your might. The undertaking is pregnant with the most glorious results. End quote. With the Revolutionary War now over, Elizabethtown, again later to become Moundsville, wasn't as popular of a location as it was about 30 years prior. So maybe digging into the mound would provide tourist attention and again bring profit to the town. So a meeting was held among the members of the community to discuss the stirring proposal. They considered it as an attractive new way to, again, bring new visitors. But also, it was very attractive to the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company, which was actively looking for a location to lay down tracks on this side of the river. In the end, they came to an agreement and said, yes, let's dig into the mound. And $2,500 was raised for the dig. The mound and surrounding land were still in possession of the Tomlinson family, now under the tutelage of one of their sons, Jesse Tomlinson. Now, at first, Jesse was still in agreement with his familial belief, and he didn't want to dig into the grave. But with more and more members of town agreeing in opposition, he really had no choice but to surrender and let it happen. 
But as a condition, Jesse said that the dig was going to be led by his family. So we tapped another Tomlinson, Abelard Tomlinson, and a brother-in-law, Thomas Biggs, to take charge of the project. Their archaeological prowess could be best described as amateur. Still, it kept a lot of the work within the founding family's orbit, and a month later, excavation began. The Grave Creek Mound was thought to be constructed anywhere between 250 and 100 BC, and on top stood white oaks that were suspected to be about 500 years old. So as Abelard Tomlinson and Thomas Biggs began digging, they were doing so into deep history that had been barely touched until this point. So to begin the dig, they positioned themselves actually at the bottom of the mound, and they started digging in, 10 feet wide, 7 feet high. And after picking away dirt for about 100 feet, they ran into the burial vault, at least the first one. They then dug a vertical shaft from the top of the mound to meet the horizontal path in the same vault. During that process, they discovered a second vault. Of course, during this, the Tomlinson family was actually doing the digging, and leading the excavation, but during this process, there was actually another person on site, a local physician named Dr. James W. Clemens, and he was actually documenting the day-by-day -day findings, reporting that information to local papers and other scientists in the region that were interested in the mound's contents. That was part of the deal from the town, of course. The Tomlinsons could do the digging, but they wanted to know what was actually being found, and Dr. Clemens was doing that reporting. So of course he had access to the buried contents just as much as Abelard and Thomas did when he was following them with the dig. So Clemens was well known in the area, in particular Wheeling, again just 12 miles south of Elizabethtown, which would become Moundsville. Not only was he one of the finest doctors in the area, he was actually a very avid poet and collector of artifacts, in particular old archaic books. With Abelard and Thomas's lack of archaeological knowledge, it seemed like Clemens was a perfect fit to join the excavation team to help sort out the findings, especially because he had a good understanding of what the Adena culture was known for, or at least at the time what they knew that the Adena culture was known for, so it seemed like a good fit for him to tag along. Inside the vaults, the excavators found human remains from things like copper rings, bracelets, plates of mica, ivory beads, and ornaments. And as they continued to search among the grave and ancestral decorations that they found in the upper chamber, the second vault that they found, Abelard and Thomas came across something that they'd never seen before, really unlike anything else that they'd ever seen. A small stone with clear but unknown symbols just on one side, nothing on the other side. The stone wasn't very big, really about the same size if, if you laid four pennies down and put them in a square, like on a table. That's about how big this thing was, a very tiny rock. The stone had 25 very visible characters, which at the time was believed to be a form of an alphabet. But what's interesting is because they knew that this mound was so old, it was built during the Adena's heyday, they knew that this alphabet predated Christopher Columbus's expedition to the Americas in 1492. 
but how could that absolutely be? That doesn't make any sense because up until then, there was no proof anywhere in the Americas of a written language before Columbus had gotten to the United States or what was now the United States. So it didn't make any sense that now all of a sudden in this mound in Moundsville that the Tomlinsons and Dr. Clemens had just discovered what could possibly be the next Rosetta Stone. It all of a sudden had the potential to unlock the secrets of the Adena and surrounding cultures dating back to a time earlier than the East even predicted that there was written language. It was mind-blowing. And although people weren't sure what The Rock actually said, these 25 characters, they couldn't quite figure it out at first, it's exactly what the Tomlinsons were hoping to find buried in the mound. Something complex, something visually breathtaking, something that could sell tickets. And that is exactly what they found. The original vision of the project was to discover what was inside, so they did that, and if it was deemed interesting enough, the Tomlinsons planned to build a staircase right up the middle of the mound and establish a toll booth for anyone curious enough to check out the inside, and of course this mysterious stone, so they did that too. So as the Tomlinsons continued to sell tickets for the public to explore the mound, they also built a three-story building at the very top for patrons to visit and enjoy the views from the top of the mound, really just another way to make a buck. Unfortunately, the museum, quote-unquote museum, that was built at the top of the mound was poorly constructed and the displayed artifacts that they found in the mound that they stacked in this museum, well, they were left in the open without much security. In the end, things were either stolen or just crumbled and, you know, was kind of swept away by the weather. So this makeshift museum ultimately was abandoned by the family in 1846, and the lack of foot traffic didn't justify the expenses of keeping up with it. This was a decade after they found the rock. Instead, the structure was just left to the elements and free to roam for people and animals alike. What also happened as time passed, more attention, mostly speculation, was aimed toward the stone, and not the Tomlinsons, but Dr. Clemens. Because word passed from town to town about this mysterious stone, and scientists who'd been reading Clemens's work, his daily findings in local papers and other publications, including Crania America, which was a national outlet, well, none of these scientists had ever caught wind of the stone from these publications. It was just word of mouth that they heard about this mysterious new artifact, this Rosetta Stone-like mysterious rock that they found. But it was never in any of the local papers or this national publication that he had been sending information to to report about. So that didn't necessarily make sense. And after all of this time, Clemens had been recording the bodies and ornaments, but Again, never once did he publish the findings of the stone in any of his official documentation that he sent out for all of these other publications. So, as time passed and people started to hear about this stone, those scientists who were following his daily work 
needed to see it for themselves and kind of ask the question like, WTF, mate, where is this publication? Or where is the documentation? So initially, the Tomlinsons and Clemens stated that they believed the rock had simple Native American hieroglyphics on it. Those 25 characters, they said, hey, these are Native American hieroglyphics. That was until a true ethnologist arrived in Moundsville to get a peek at the stone for himself. Henry Rose Schoolcraft was the first person to really start asking questions about this rock. After seeing it in person and critically examining it, he became convinced that the stone had ancient Spanish or British origins, that those characters on the stone actually were from other languages like Greek, Norse runic, Hebrew, among several other cultures. Again, that's actually more mind-blowing than before, maybe. How could all of these characters, how could these characters from all of these other languages be found on this stone when at first they just thought it was Native American written language? So, total confusion. Now, at the time of his analysis, talking about Henry Schoolcraft, most people really thought that the Native Americans didn't have the mental capacity to produce such intricate work. It was kind of the racist stereotype about Native Americans at the time. They weren't very smart, so how could they have come up with a written language? And that was very common belief at the time, or at least that was a common stereotype that, that people shared. But if Schoolcraft's reporting was accurate, this stone proved that other people had been to the Americas before Columbus. So not only was this idea that the Native Americans have a written language kind of put on the back burner, but that was mind-blowing. But now, to think that other people before the Europeans had been to the Americas was even more shocking than the Native Americans having their own written language. Still, no one could really decipher what the rock said because it was made up of so many symbols of so many cultures now, of so many languages, so nobody could really figure out what this stone was trying to say. So controversy continued to swirl around the authenticity of the tablet and whether it was truly found in the mound or if it was forged, evidence of the latter piled up. And people were really starting to ask questions. The inexplicable symbols, the lack of proper documentation, the exploitation of the stone as a persuasive attempt to bring tourists to town, that was all enough for multiple experts in the field to discredit Clemens and the stone as fake. And ultimately, that infamy now gained because people were speculating that he faked, he forged this rock, really sent... Clemens into financial ruin for the remainder of his years. And as time has passed, many have agreed that the rock was forged, but it wasn't until much later that the strongest argument came to light. Actually, it wasn't until the 21st century that it happened. In 2008, at the annual West Virginia Archaeological Society meeting, anthropologist David Ostreyer offered maybe the most damning evidence to suggest the rock's falsification. Ostreyer put together this story, and pretty much this was his claim, his argument. He says that Clemens was actually the person who in fact wrote the article in the local paper that persuaded the town and the Tomlinsons 
to dig into the mound. And Clemens actually also bankrolled the $2,500 needed to put into the excavation, so he funded the excavation, nobody knew it at the time, and then of course he was disappointed after nothing significant was found, just those ornaments and plates and beads. So he forged this sensational stone to help recover his losses, because he knew that people would want to come check it out. And Ostreyer even believes that he found the source of the symbols in an 18th century book from Spain, which had letters and characters from ancient coins and monuments in Spanish culture and documented them in this book. Clemens was also an eclectic private collector of old archaic books, so it's really not impossible that he might have owned this book, and he just copied those symbols and characters from that book and put them on this stone, knowing that really nobody in the area would be able to call him out. Nobody knew what those things were. Nobody knew what those characters were. In a way, it kind of makes sense. He faked the story, got the money, was disappointed, forged the stone to make his money back, and drew these characters that he had from an old book of his onto these things because he knew nobody would call him out. That took a long time, nearly 150 years for somebody to piece that story together. Seems simple to us now, but that's how long this mystery has been going on, really until the early 21st century. So, Ostreyer presented the most convincing argument about the stone's origins, although it's still not conclusively known or 100% agreed upon today, that idea that it was forged. In part because the location of the actual stone has been lost. Nobody knows where the actual stone is. It was lost in the late 19th century. Although several casts have been made as replicas, so we do know what it looks like, but the original stone is long gone. Who knows? It might be in a trash chute somewhere. And so here we are now. You guys know the story. You know some of the facts, at least the things that have been documented over time. What do you think? Was it faked and forged by this doctor who was trying to make some bucks? Or was this actually maybe part of a greater mystery in our history that we don't even know about? The Adena may have been greeted by other civilizations before Columbus set sail to the Americas. Who knows? Both stories have a lot of uh, fantasy tied to them, but at the end of the day, we'll never truly know how all of this went down. But we do appreciate you guys joining and listening to us. Now, let's talk a little bit about this story with the author and maybe some conspiracies that are still tied to the Grave Creek Stone. Stay tuned. If you're looking for a job in West Virginia, or if you're a small business that's looking to hire 10, 15, heck, maybe 50 employees, well, then you have to talk to our friends at Mountaineer Employment Solutions. Yeah, Bill Carter is the president and CEO of MES, and they've got two locations, Charleston and Morgantown, but they are looking for people to fill jobs all over the state of West Virginia. So make sure to check them out, beamountaineer.com, Be a mountaineer.com if you're looking to buy sell rent flip or finance real estate projects in southern west virginia you gotta talk to our friends jordan christ and jacob skinner at building appalachia buildingappalachia.com is the website we had jordan and jacob both on the podcast great dudes they want to make west virginia beautiful that is their entire mo they are going through beautification projects and 
Kanawha, Putnam, and Cabell County. So if you're looking to live in one of those places, they can hook you up, man. So make sure to go check them out at buildingappalachia.com. Tell them Mountaineer Media sent you. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to part two of the Grave Diggers of Moundsville, an audio experience, an audio adventure that dives into the history of Moundsville, the family who found it, and all of the secrets buried inside the Grave Creek Mound. This was a lot of fun to put together. Something very different, Cooper and I, today, since we've been kind of working on it, we've been talking about the author, Mason Jack. We want to incorporate Mason's perspective on this. Mace, what's up, dude? And uh, maybe you can start us off with... Like, why? Why Why Moundsville? Where did that kind of uh, enthusiasm to tell the story come from? Yeah, great to be here, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, not like you're not part of the part of, part of the pod anyway. You know, it's like we... Yeah, I know. You guys never let me on. It's like uh, I try to break through every time, but it just never works. So. That, in fact, is a lie. Let's yeah, that is, that is a lie. There's a little continue bit... Continue is what you're saying. A white lie in there. But um, the inspiration really came from just like... Um, just really like a hobby of mine, you know, I like to read about history and I picked up a, like a general West Virginia history book from the library. And some of the first things it was talking about was the, uh, like the prehistory of West Virginia. So, you know, the Indian people, the native Americans that lived here. Um, and one of the first like little sketches in the books was of the grave Creek stone. And I just thought that's, I've never heard about that. That's interesting. Yeah. Absolutely. And it leads you just down a, a rabbit hole of kind of figuring all this stuff out and seeing these connections that you previously, that I previously didn't know about, you know, a lot yeah. of stuff. Well, I think it, that there is so much history on the Ohio River that really doesn't get discussed. And so kind of telling this story, it's like, all, you know, you, you don't think too much about pre-statehood West Virginia when you're growing up in West Virginia. They really don't teach you too much. Mm-hmm. a ton before you know the civil war and the breakaway and whatnot but yeah. man i mean you want to talk about some characters in this uh, you know abraham lincoln george washington uh lewis and clark yeah. all kind of popped up in this story and all had key moments and roles in uh, you know really the the discovery of all of the the ohio river from the top to the bottom and then obviously the mound plays a part in that all of them kind of saw the mound at some point so it's kind of cool yeah, that all of these main characters ran yeah, into river's been, yeah was yeah incredibly important to the early development of the united states and that is the entire or our entire western border is the ohio river so mm-hmm. it's important to our state as well as you know, the country as a whole when it was forming. So, yeah, it was cool to figure out, find all these quotes about them going up and down the Ohio River and seeing things that would be, you know, become important later on the line. Um, But, yeah, West Virginia history kind of gets painted with broad strokes. You know, you kind of only get the, uh, the top level view of, things that happen, but when you start digging into the nuance of these things, it's like all this stuff becomes revealed almost like, yeah. Yeah. No. Cooper thoughts. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was obviously it's been sweet to watch you guys build it out. I've played a, a lesser role and so much credit to you guys, but 
one of the things I liked, uh, me personally, selfishly, is my family's from Moundsville. My grandma worked in the Moundsville Penitentiary, so literally right across from the mound itself in Moundsville. Um, and it's something that I've been to as a kid a million times, but not, you know, I didn't know this story. I didn't know the details of this, and I've yeah. Feel like I've in in many ways grew up there, so it was definitely neat to to see that aspect of it. And then also, just the uh, you know, not that we're telling brand new stories, we're we're telling historical tales, but we're bringing a fresh, bringing them to life in an audio experience and a written blog experience, um, adding some much like you know, twenty first century eyes to some of these stories. Um, this one in particular was sweet, and we look forward to I think doing this all over the place um, within West Virginia, because as you alluded to, Mason, uh, West Virginia. You know, certainly it's I think if it fits into if there was like a national textbook, we'd have a couple paragraphs and it would be coal mining. It would be a few different things breaking off during the Civil War, becoming a state. And that's it. But I think what it's important for West Virginians to realize that, yeah, our history is much more complex, much more connected to events, national level events, national level figures, Abraham Lincoln, for God's sakes, Lewis and Clark. I mean, like, you know, big time players in history. All, more often than not, they've got some sort of West Virginia connection. So, yeah, it, it's a, a sweet thing that we've brought this to life. Let's... I think that's a big part of what we at Mountaineer Media are trying to do is trying to shine a, lot, a more positive light on the state. And a part of that comes from our history just being shown in such a negative light, uh, painted with these broad strokes that we never really get into the nuance of how how we got here or why these things happened. Um, and that, that uh, there's a quote that sticks out to me from uh, Ram Paulo by Stephen Stoll, which I post a review on the blog. It said, seeing the world without the past would be like visiting a city after a devastating hurricane declaring that the people there have always lived in ruins. So that kind of just spoke to me in a way that, yeah. Makes good quote. That's a good quote. Discover more about. Yeah. <laughs> you put that on from. like that on a T-shirt or something. That's like, <laughs> like a, that's like a misjudgment of West Virginia for sure. It's like a that, that perfectly aligns with what happens. I think with West Virginia. Too often. Yeah, I think that's a big part of the reason why we have had such a negative stereotype on the state is that people don't understand much of the history and they just write it off. I guess. Absolutely. Let's get into some of our thoughts about the story itself and whether or not this stone was faked and forged or if it was part of maybe a larger uh, conspiracy story, if you will. Um, Mason, you wrote the piece. We could either start or end with you. It doesn't doesn't matter, but faked, forged, or real? What... Uh, I'm on the side of... <clears throat> I'm on more so the side that it was. Did fake. you just burp on the? <laughs> did you just? I mean, we'll bleep that out. We'll do you have any? Like, what? It's early in the morning. You couldn't have held it or like silently it's, let it go. You just it's early. It's early in the morning. What do you rip, like, man? You burp more often. Yeah, hold on. I'm not fully in control of my body yet. So we're just letting things roll here. Um, we get you talking a little bit, man, and all the air, gets, all that trapped air starts coming out. I guess exactly. starts flowing out. <laughs> I'll throw a little bleep in for that, but um, you're not yeah, the one just, editing this one. Oh yeah, was it faked or not faked? What do you think? I think it was faked, but um, I'm certainly not the one who like discovered this or like 
<laughs> oh, you be, you didn't this. dig it out of the ground <laughs> and, yeah, and exactly. say I found this. Um, what was it? Yes. Yeah, I believe it's um, based on recent studies done by, you know, WVU professors and all that stuff. It's generally agreed to be fake, but that mystery is still there because the stone is actually it's gone, gone. It's missing, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's been missing since the late 1800s absolutely um i will say it i i do agree that i think it's also been faked for a couple of reasons i documented my thoughts here one we still have not been able to find the true origins of like what language this is or even taking these characters and even if you try to decode them from other languages like it just comes into like it's it's just jumbled. It, it doesn't it doesn't really make sense. So one, nobody can still understand the language. Two, there are no other examples or any similarities between this stone and other artifacts found, especially within Adena culture. And the other thing is like the Tomlinsons and the Clemens dude, they never truly documented it, right? That was part of the the story was that they didn't really tell the national publications like hey we found this incredible stone like this is a huge piece of it's an artifact it's like they kept it to themselves in yeah. theory to help drive up tourism and if they had exposed themselves that they'd found the stone maybe somebody was going to take it and not let them keep it you know as a way to try and drive people into town to make money so i uh, and and it just goes along with the the greater the arc the the theme of the tomlinson's exploitation of the land and its people and that just kind of follows suit with pretty much the the rest of the story to me yeah. so i wouldn't be shocked if it was yeah completely fake and forged i do want to say that there is a good conspiracy that i found and it's not so much about like it being in a language not saying that the 25 characters on the stone were a language but directions and whether this is like Nicolas Cage National Treasure level directions of like the Adina Gold Treasures underneath whatever, you know, I don't know if it's that, but this dude seems to have think Freeborn's um, something. This dude wrote Freeborn. I, I really couldn't, I, I don't even know his name. So there goes my uh, true expertise. But basically what he's saying is like the symbols were locations, like a diamond was a comet. A triangle with a line underneath was like a mountain, and X, like X marks the spot. And he thinks that it was a map to the mound that they found in Miamisburg, Ohio. And then, so there's a huge mound in Miamisburg, Ohio, too. But then they never found any stone like that there. So it's like, okay, what, where, where, if this is a map and it's just pointing at the other mound, that's cute mm. and cheeky, but there, it doesn't feel like there's a greater purpose. Or maybe that nobody ever really found it. If it was a map, maybe nobody ever really truly figured it out. Nicholas Cape, we need somebody else on the on the clue. Maybe that's what we should do. We should really dedicate our lives to going should, after this Adena yeah. treasure. I think so. We should start excavating mounds ourselves. That probably would be frowned upon by the Native American community. <laughs> and, I think that, <laughs> like, and let's be honest, we probably proud. destroyed them all anyway. So. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it. I mean, it's tough. Yeah. I mean, my opinion of it is real fake because I think if you're a, a couple hundred years ago, if you're trying to fake something, you probably do just put random symbol. Like one of the quick signs of forgery is to like make it. You know, people that don't maybe aren't sophisticated forgers, they just put things that look like things, yeah, confusion. and then just it's confuse like people. Clearly, in like retrospect, two hundred years later, we we've kind of documented a lot of the the historical languages of the world. So if it doesn't fit into it, it's like, well, hmm, maybe this was just made up. 
the other side of me, you know, I want to believe in aliens. I believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> that like, that. Yeah. like I, you know, I'm that kind of guy, but, you know, leave hope for the, for the conspiracy. So, yeah, I mean, it's like I said, I mean, maybe that's why it's been a fascinating story in uh, folklore for hundreds of years because of, because of this very conversation. It's kind of, you can't quite place your finger on it. Building a mound versus building a pyramid isn't exactly apples to apples. It's pretty apples to oranges, but in terms of the lengths that they went to to build the mound, I mean, it took like a decade or something, right? It mm -hmm. took like, yeah, I, it's I mean, big. I mean, you're on it. it. You, it's like for, humblingly big. It's massive. Yeah. And, and just for a couple of bodies, it's not like they piled a hundred bodies in there. It was like they built this massive mound for like eight bodies or less than that. You know what I mean? So it was like fascinating yeah. to think that they did that over the course of so long just That's for right, such yeah. a small amount of their history or just a couple of their you know mm -hmm. members of their community yeah. so anyway aliens help build the mound i think that's what i'm getting Bingo. out there so certainly there's there's questions to be raised about that for the uh the south charleston mound but that's a different story um, what do you mean by that you can't what do you like, i know you mentioned once that there were yes and that there were yes over seven foot people yeah that's what i've heard yeah. they did find like giant skeletons like over shack. seven foot like eight feet 18th in century shack yeah well but you know in in there certainly is a discussion to be had about that like at the time if, if somebody was born over seven feet tall which was unheard of in native american culture then yeah i'm sure that they would assume like this guy's you know, a freaking they'd worship <laughs> that person like we worship shack let's be real that's the same thing but then they like discovered eight foot tall Native Americans, and that just starts now, hold getting on, on the really? level of abnormality. <laughs> yeah, that just gets yeah. yeah, really, really interesting stuff. So whether or not that that was like again forged to be determined, but th this was an ancient aliens episode, so you know that they're on the side of like aliens help build the South Charleston Mound, and that's yeah. their take more or less. So absolutely, <laughs> yeah. But it's just I think it's important to recognize that even though our statehood started out of the civil war that there's so much more history that went on in the region. Yeah. Predating that obviously, but yeah, I like the idea too, that you're in the library, like digging through these old books and these old artifacts, like the canal library. Yeah. You're just, you're working, man. You, you wanted to tell the story. Props. Yeah. Well, we're always taught, you know, the best way to learn histories go right to the, you know, the primary sources, the source the newspaper articles, the, and thanks, shout out to the Kanawha County Library. They have done the best job renovating that library. And yeah, it's awesome. 21st century. Opening up the, the rare book room to me and the microfilm room. That was nice. The microfilm. So how does that work? Like you put something underneath it or it's like a slideshow. You can look back from old newspaper clippings, right? Yeah, basically they have newspapers dating back to... I think the oldest one was 1896 or something. Um, okay, so this is even, that's even after like all this Moundsville stuff. Yeah, it's a little rolls of film. Um, it's kind of about this. You stick it in this machine they have and just start scrolling through. You can go through every day from yeah, all the dates they have. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that you did that. I've, I've never had the temptation to do that. Nothing has ever driven me to get to that point. So, again, props to you, man, for like going to these. Uh, these yeah. lengths to, to tell the story. Yeah, yeah man, when you're invested fun. in it. Absolutely. You said you had something fun for us to wrap up. Hmm. What what did you want to share? I did. I wanted to ask you guys some West Virginia history questions. 
I thought it was more burping and belching. Sorry, I got you know. No, no, I'll save that for. I'll make that a surprise. One. <laughs> no. All right, Let's are we ready? Or do I need a pen and paper? Is this what? Is it quiz? <laughs> no, no, it's off the dome. Off the dome. Multiple choice. <laughs> yeah. Right. Hands off the keyboard. No Google. <laughs> no All Google. Right. Okay. First question is: What name was originally proposed for West Virginia? Um, I think it was like Canal. Wasn't yeah, it was like Canal. Canal, ding, ding, ding. Yeah. There we go. I did know that one. Yeah. God. Uh, Could have been sicker if it was Canal. That's kind of a sick name. Yeah, right. Ooh, it nice. Is. Yeah. Canal. Um, Everybody else seems like normal, but then the state of Canal. <laughs> like, yeah. The Canal people. Like, we're yeah, like, definitely make us normal. People. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Fire them off. Let's Question go. Question two Which West Virginia city had the first brick street in the United States? Hmm. Brick Street. Is this a trick question? Is this like Moundsville? Because they. Which West Virginia said the first Brick Street? Let me think about. You know what? My guess would be Cooper could have a different guess here, but my guess is going to be Wheeling because that's where the capital was. So my guess is going to be Wheeling because they built the Brick Street. I guess would be wrong. Well, let me say first. I could have agreed to Wheeling. All right, so it's not Wheeling, so that helps me. Um. Let's see. First, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say Berkeley Springs because all the people from DC coming up there and the historic little places Not up a bad there. Bad guess through the Panhandle. It's actually our hometown of Charleston, West Virginia. Interesting. Wow. The first brick street in the United States, 1870. Wow. What wow. did they build streets with before? I dirt, dirt I guess. <laughs> Horseshit. Yeah. Um, here's the last one. I'll throw you guys for a loop. What ice age creature was first discovered in West Virginia? Oh, saber tooth tiger. That's a hell of an answer. It's probably one of the only ice age <laughs> that creatures. Or a mammoth, that, yeah, know? I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go mammoth, I guess. Because well, no, there's no fucking mammoths found in West Virginia. I'm gonna say, if he's saying saber tooth, I'm gonna have to say. Gosh, what's the other thing? It was like some type of fucking bear type thing. I don't even know. Ooh, All right, that's a good one. Yeah, some type of like prehistoric bear looking thing. Mm-hmm. Both are a little off base. It was the ancient giant sloth. Oh, oh my goodness. The Jesus. 1790s. I feel like that almost, I should win that one because ancient bear sloth. Like, that's <laughs> that, that's kind of close. <laughs> Just a, a, you know what? All right. Half, How come a, and, half yeah. a point for Cooper. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Cooper, Cooper wins this one. I didn't think sloths were ice age creatures. I thought they were like jungle creatures. Aren't they in like the rainforest now? They switched gears and they went from like. Yeah. yeah I mean, well, in 1796, Colonel John Stewart sent soon to be Vice President Thomas Jefferson some fossils his soldiers had discovered in a cave in Greenbar County. Hmm. Oh, that sounds fake right there. That sounds almost like <laughs> they just found his ass in a cave. <laughs> that sounds like. Did you guys ever see that thing that like the first dinosaur bone was discovered after shortly after George Washington's death? So George Washington, never the president that. of the United States, yeah. never knew dinosaurs existed. Yeah. <laughs> like, damn, that would be, you know, a shock. Could you imagine yeah. John Adams like, dang, we should have told, told George this. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All the guys after that. <laughs> giant lizards running around, George. <laughs> yeah, giant lizards. Oh, shoot. Anyway, boys, this was fun. We'll do it again. Mason's got another big story that he's working on. Will the mine wars 
we'll get into more of that in the next couple of weeks but um send us your story if you're listening send send us us your story story ideas if you want us to explore people places things all of those good nouns please pass them our way and we'll try and tell those stories so everybody thanks mason thank you for putting in all that hard work coop thanks congratulations on your history win Yep. Pretty much the golden horseshoe right there. So, <laughs> yeah. boys, thanks. We'll do it again. Thank you. See you guys. <laughs>